Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. This is Kevin Joseph O'Connor, and you're listening to the Spirit of Play Conversations on Creativity podcast. This episode is with my good friend, Jonathan Wyndham. He's a musician. He's a, a guitarist and producer and songwriter. You can find him on Instagram at Jonathan Wyndham and jonathanwyndham.com. Uh, Pre-COVID, he was the guitarist for Jesse James Decker. And before that, several years ago, he was on The Voice. This was originally a two and a half hour conversation that I've, I've tried to, to whittle down here. Um, but we, we talk about his childhood in South Carolina and his relationship with his mom and dad and the significance of showing up and how the power of caring and showing up is so, so important. Um, he is such a good storyteller. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. Special thanks to Jonathan for recording the intro outro bumper music. Um, it was it was fun seeing him play with different effects and come up with something kind of on the fly for this episode. Um, so thanks for providing some tunes for this episode, Jonathan, uh, and for being a great guest. I had such a good time recording this conversation with him. Um, and I think that you can, you can feel the, the energy in this, in this episode. And I appreciate everyone who's responded and enjoyed the conversation. I want to do so many more of these with other creators and, and creatives and musicians and artists, um, in so many different mediums. And I like the opportunity to, hear from people who think in a way that I do not think who operate within a medium that I don't have experience, um, learning how they dive into their process and how their story has evolved to where they are. Uh, so if you have suggestions on who I should interview and, and have a conversation with, I would love to hear from you. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Kevin underscore Joseph or on uh, at my website at kevinjoseph.art. Thanks. Tell me about Bo. You said he got you. Do, you. do you need to do an intro or you want to just crank into it? I mean, we'll talk about. What's up, y'all? My name's Jonathan Wyndham. Uh, my friend Kevin O'Connor has this is dope podcast. You should listen to every single episode. Probably this one last. Just go ahead and stop this one. Open up a different one and enjoy. Come back and be it's like. It's like oh. that educational programming thing you watched <laughs> in middle school where they're like, all right. And after you do this homework assignment, go ahead and hit play again, and we'll yeah, be back. like you ever Eject stop. the VHS. <laughs> and you're like, there's no way I'm Eject stopping Eject the VHS, this. rewind for approximately eight seconds, 
kids that, nowadays are like, what's a VHS? All right, I'm gonna go ahead and sit here and be quiet because you have you have 15 seconds to <laughs> to write out this prompt. Oh, isn't that funny? See, this is where I take Bo's collar off so he doesn't just, as I call it, Bojangle his way around. <laughs> That's uh, the chubby kid in me thinking about biscuits at all points of time. <laughs> but yeah, so like, we are you referring to what I said earlier when you said hold that thought? Because I said Bo got me my first gig. Yeah. So it wasn't my first gig per se. It was my first country touring gig. And I'd been playing... When I first moved to town, I got a gig with a Christian band that was like uh, funded by a church convention, a Baptist convention in North Carolina. We did all their youth camps and stuff. And it was cool because it was like you work your tail off and you play for like 200 bucks a week. And you were like also led Bible study and also sold merch and also moved gear. Wait, so, so that, how old were you when this was happening? Like 19. Okay, so that's a good 200 bucks. Yeah, 200 bucks a week, plus the living expenses, which is all I really wanted. Um, you know, I was a college student. I just wanted, like, living expenses and my $5 coffee, you know? Like like any good college student. <laughs> um, so I, by the time I got on a tour, my work ethic was, like, far surpassing what was necessary for a professional tour. Because I was used to, like, driving the box truck full of our gear. And then unloading it and then running off stage after we played. And, like selling merch so then i was like we have a merch person i don't have to drive the van what is what (laughs) i've still driven plenty of vans but um i was walking bow i used to live right by um music circle and a condominium place called the bristol rent a one-bedroom apartment and i was walking bow ains and i've been dating a year and she's like you need a dog like we should get a dog together and i was like i need a dog like i need a hole in the head and then she sent me honestly a phone video of him humping a teddy bear as a little puppy he was like a little black bear cub and i was like okay i'll be there in 10 minutes so yeah so the the dog thing i was walking bow and i was walking down music row because i live close so i walked down where the studios are this dude who was just like, oh, can I pet him? Like, and he was a really cute puppy, like really bumbly and like a ball of fur. And I meet people all the time. And obviously this pre-COVID. So like my extrovert was, my freak flag was flying on that. And I was like, yeah, sure. Like whatever, my name's Jonathan, this is Bo. And it, one, of the, one of the people that stopped me and petted Bo was a producer who loved dogs. And he was like, asked me what I did. I was like, you know, I've interned at the studio, I've sang some sessions, I've played some sessions. Like at the time I was touring with a like Guy Penrod, this legacy gospel act, which is funny because the touring happened because I called a buddy of mine who's gnarly at guitar and was like, what's a gig I could try out for that would make me learn how to play chicken picking guitar? Cause I need deadlines to do stuff. And so I find those deadlines to make myself work. And he was like, uh, why don't you just come out and on tour with us this weekend we got some shows we need an electric guitar player i was like really what should i learn he's like everything <laughs> which was a total lie he they hadn't changed their set for like a year he was just like sorry that was the guitar player the guitar teacher in me like because <laughs> i showed up like knowing i had ulcers i hadn't slept in like five days like i tried to learn everything and some of them like the skill level was just way past me 
where I was at the time. Like there were Brent Mason solos and like I had to like kind of dumb them down for a bit. And some of the ones I spent the most time on, we didn't even play and he knew we wouldn't play and it was just funny. But he was like, sorry, that was a guitar teacher in me. You learned a lot. Um, and I remember like after the gig, after the weekend of gigs, guy was literally, because the artist, uh, he's like, you know, bud, hands aren't quite up to speed yet, but you're so good to have around and you load in gear so well. Like I'll hang in there. You just get your hands up to speed. <laughs> I was like, yes, sir. I was so embarrassed, but also like pumped. So yeah, anyway. Um, so I had that as like a touring background. So when I met this producer and he's like in a couple hall of fames, like he's a well-known in circles that are familiar with that style of music. And yeah, he was just like, I've got an artist. He doesn't really hear harmonies. Will you come and sing harmonies on his demos? And I was like, yeah, sure, dude. Like party on he was like what do you charge i was like bro i don't have a rate <laughs> like whatever you want to pay me is cool because i i didn't know and i definitely didn't want to price myself out of the first gig i'd been offered so i was like yeah whatever man and uh so i came in and then he he learned more about me and asked what i was doing that weekend and i was going on the road with guy and he's like oh so you tour and you you play guitar and sing these backgrounds on the road with this artist his name was seth alley and I was like, yeah, sure, dude. Like, yeah. Um, his name was Bill McDermott. That was the producer. And he was like, awesome. So I met Seth. Seth seemed like super chill. And that was that. And before I realized it, like I was on the road with him doing that. And we did the whole like Live Nation festival circuit. And I was baptized into the country music touring community. Thanks, it was dope. Thanks to Bo. Thanks to Bo. Yeah, it was all Bo. You know, we should we should probably introduce him as as Beauregard. Yes, sorry, Beauregard, the agent. Beauregard, <laughs> the agent, Wyndham. Yeah, every gig he gets me, he gets a new raw hot. How's the recording learning curve been for you? Um, has it been fun? It's it's been fun until I do five hours of editing and then I accidentally hit delete and save at the same time, and I I have to do it all over again. Dude, it will make you. I mean, want to throw your fist through a wall. Yeah. Nothing more serious than that, but that in itself can be quite serious because if you hit a beam, goodbye, Knuckles. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or they're actually twice the Knuckles you started with because they're like in pieces and swollen. Um, um, this, is the, this is the direction I want my podcast to take. I, I mean, I'm really glad that we're doing cause this. Because the premise of this podcast is, I honestly, I didn't even ask you what it was Getting about. Getting better You knuckles. asked me to do something and I said yes. Because. That's real Jonathan spirit, everyone. Well, okay. You will, and your listeners will know, like you have certain people in your life. And there are certain people, like when you get COVID, like my wife and I did in November, they will come to your house and bring you groceries unsolicited and wave at you through your glass door. And that was you. And like, that's just the kind of brothers we are. So when you asked me to do something, I was like, yeah, dude, when are we doing it? And, and then you're like, don't you wanna know what it's like, about? And I was like, sure. <laughs> I, I guess so, is that important? But can we also eat Indian food? <laughs> Part of what I think is fun about these conversations and about, I guess, the idea of this podcast is um, exploring what not only 
what inspires people to create and why we feel an itch to create, but also what is this, like, what, what's our story? Where do we all come from and how, uh, how have these things that like, there, there are things that I grew up experiencing, which I thought were super boring and not super unique and interesting. And then later I got more into the world and I was like, wow, I had a really colorful, diverse childhood and, and, and experience of growing up. And you mentioned that you had orchestra as a background with music when you were younger. Yeah. What, what was that about? What was so that So my mom was an elementary school music teacher. Therefore, there was a rule in our house. You either had to be in the church choir or a school choir, and you had to be in some form of music. And, you know, like I tried everything. I remember, and I gave my mom crap about this the other day, because she let me, like I took French horn some in, in like elementary school. French horn is such a cool instrument. It is, except mom found out a way to like, okay, so we're renting it, right? And you get money back for how well you bring it back. So like my mom the was like, of the instrument? Yeah. So my mom was like, no hand oil on the instrument. So she gave me these gloves, these white gloves to put on. This is beautiful. Every time I played it. So I, I'm like Mickey Mousing it over here. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, how, why are kids making fun of me? Like, I didn't get it. And it's like, I wouldn't say I was the most emotionally intelligent child. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't grow up in a neighborhood, which I actually, I really did. Cause I, I, I'm a very like extroverted cat, but it's when we were talking about this, you always have so much bandwidth to hang out with other people because your hobbies are introverted. Yeah. And so as a kid, you know, my older sisters didn't want to hang out with me. Like they didn't want to play with me. Like, so I was just go outside and my imagination would just like run rampant so you didn't grow up in a neighborhood what did what did that look like was it pretty rural where you were um like it wasn't suburbia so my my hometown is a town called lexington south carolina and it used to be a farming community now has like two starbucks and a ton of traffic so it's different now than it was when i grew up however we lived on like three and a half acres and we had this huge farm like thousand acres kind of on all sides of us this family um in south carolina called the snyders owned all this land and so we were kind of in the middle of that on a on a house that used to belong to some family member that had changed hands and blah 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 so i grew up in like this 150 year old pre-civil war house sounds super idyllic yeah it was dope uh it turned out like the funny part of it is like my grandmother my mom or my dad's mom referred to that house when my parents bought it as the shack because it was in such bad shape. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't in the middle of nowhere. Like the bus still came to us. Um, there was a, Sounds there like was a actually a really movie. affluent neighborhood at the end of our street, right? It was called Spence's Plantation. And I remember getting off the bus and they would hit our house after that neighborhood. <clears throat> and, but on the way, before school, they pick us up and then hit that neighborhood. And I remember um, my sister Catherine came off the bus one day. She's like, Dad, are we, are we poor? Because <laughs> our house just looked, you know, it didn't have the bells and whistles or whatever, and like a crush and run driveway. And without missing a beat, my dad, he was just like, 
you're nothing, but your mom and I are doing all right. <laughs> and it was just like... <laughs> I lost. I mean, I'll never forget it. I just... I, I knew it was witty, even though I didn't understand the depth of it. And it's... I hate in bi- autobiographies whenever people, like, drum up their memories from when they were three or whatever. But I only remember the funny stuff. I don't actually... I tend not to remember the bad stuff. And I think it's when I was when I was growing up and as I became a Christian in my teens and then understood the depth of that in my later teens, I had to realize that once you forgave someone, you couldn't just dwell on it. And so it's kind of become part of it where like once I forgive someone for something, it's not like tip of my tongue. And a lot of times people that have like I've toured with or even and we had really bad interactions like they hated my stinking guts. I won't really remember much about them at all. I think it's just like there's only so much bandwidth. Hmm. And I don't know. I don't think it's like a repression thing. Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, I think it's also a matter of like where are you spending your like where where is your energy focused? And if you have a trajectory, if you have a capacity, if you have this, like, I only have enough bandwidth and I'm trying to move in this direction so hard, everything else is, like, baggage. Well, yeah, or just fades out, you know? Like, it's like that sweater you have in the back of your closet and you don't even think about. You're like, I can't, I don't even remember that has buttons on it or not. No, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Maybe that's a bad metaphor, but... Uh, uh, yeah, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it felt my mom was really into it. So I thought it was cool because she thought it was cool. You know what I mean? Like, it's got to be cool because mom says it's cool. And your parents are kind of the authority on that. Are you talking about the house? I was circling back. Got it. I I couldn't tell how far we were circling back. (laughs) I really like long answers. I think that this format is really special that it allows for meandering answers. Mm -hmm. So so, like people call them rabbit trails, right? And I like calling them rabbit trails because if you've ever hunted rabbits, which is my South Carolina coming out, you know that wherever you spook them, they will circle back around. So they'll take a roundabout way, but they'll always come back. So you spook them, the dogs chase them and you stay put. Anyway, I'm just so waiting to see your when the rabbit's going to come back to the orchestra thing. Yeah, <laughs> so we'll come back to that. But so your parent, like, I think it's always important to come back. So anyway, my mom gave me Mickey Mouse gloves. I hated playing French horn because kids made fun of me. I didn't realize it was because I was wearing like Mickey white Mouse gloves. gloves. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> so I was also like dual... to this day on stage, he plays with white guitar with, with white cotton gloves. With white cotton Check gloves. it out. Yeah. They're unrelated. It's like a it's a coincidence, <laughs> but here we are. Dude, that would change your bone tone so much. <laughs> like, <laughs> no but, cord was ever clean. Like you couldn't actually get like the action didn't matter. Like you weren't getting any clean cords. Maybe if you the, played with flat wounds, like mediums and flat wounds, you could pull it off. I don't know. Only upright bass. Didn't Tony Iommi lose his fingertips? The dude from Black Sabbath lose his fingertips so he had like thimbles on? I have no idea. So you could, you could do white gloves and thimbles. <laughs> and you wouldn't have a squeak, but you might like catch a splinter. Like you'd need to make sure you kept the gloss on the back of the neck. Whereas I like to sand the back of the neck so you don't, you like the sweat has somewhere to go. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Anyway, isn't really it really into the guitar now? Although a, a nice nitrocellulose 
finish really you know it mm, takes it wait so you do sand the back of the guitar neck on certain on certain styles like my fender necks for sure you know i've heard that that like, like 200 grit like i guess this isn't sweat this is more like sweat wet greasy hair but i've heard that like mandolin players will like run their fingers through their hair and that's one way like old old days mandolin players would use the fact that like their hair is greasy run their fingers through their hair then play mandolin to allow like movement to be that's brilliant i hope that's true so did you move to nashville for college I moved to Nashville for music. It just so happened that I had a conversation with my dad and he's he's just very like matter of fact and funny. I was like, dad, I'm gonna go to Nashville and be a guitar player. He's like, son, that sounds awesome. I'm not helping you pay rent if you're not going to college. So good luck. And I was like, dad, I'm going to Belmont to be a guitar player. And then he was like, son, we're what you call middle class. So Belmont, it's like 40 G's a year. Like I can't, I can't swing that for you. So you're gonna have to go into debt. So you're gonna have to go into like upper, upper five figure debt to go be a guitar player and make like 20 grand a year for the first couple of years. You sure that's a good idea? You wanna, you wanna help me look for some other options? And then through the academic common market, which is this agreement with state schools, if your major's not offered in your home state, you get reciprocity with in-state tuition. So I lost my scholarships from like the state or whatever, but I got in-state tuition, so it was actually cheaper for me to go to MTSU, Middle Tennessee State, and study songwriting, which was awesome because the dude that was teaching songwriting was a guy named Rick Carnes, who wrote Long Neck Bottle for Garth Brooks, ton of stuff for Reba, and I loved him. His whole vibe was just like, I can't teach you how to write songs, but I can teach you how to not get screwed. Hmm. And I was like, bingo. Like, <laughs> he's like, I can teach you how to not be so emotional about it and actually like have a career. I was like, love it. So, yeah. So I moved up to MTSU and did that and then got an internship as quickly as possible. And I drop any class that kept me from doing an internship or playing on the weekends. You graduated. You finished. Yeah. Six years later. <laughs> I did four years and then I got distracted by some stuff in L.A. and just touring with other people. And then I finally went back part time to knock out the last two credits. Because, you know, like a typical, whatever, 21-year-old dude, I'm like, I don't need to talk to an advisor. I can figure this out. And I overlooked like a history class and a recording industry elective. That makes graduating hard. Yeah. So I had to go back and get those. In. I graduated, I think, with the exact number of credits. Like, <laughs> I was like, not one credit over. Oh, yeah. Me I neither. graduated and... <sighs> I was taking a painting class that I loved. I was enjoying it Where so much. Where did you go much. to school? Chattanooga? Um, I went to Lee University in Lee Cleveland, University. Tennessee. So like 20 minutes up 75 outside of Chattanooga. Okay. So went to Chattanooga all the time. But yeah, I, I went to Lee and... Dude, I, I love Chattanooga. Chattanooga is a great city. Man. I was in a painting class and I was out at the Akoe River, I fell, I dislocated my shoulder, What? had surgery on it, and my arm was in a sling, and it was my right arm, my dominant arm that I was painting and drawing with, and my painting instructor was like, I'm so sorry. However, 
if you don't finish these paintings, you won't pass. And if you don't pass this one class, you won't graduate college. So I like I finished a self-portrait with my left hand or with me like leaning over a table with my arm in a sling. Like it was it was pretty pathetic. But it's hilarious to think of like I could have muscular issues for the rest of my life, but I'm getting this degree. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way you soft sold that whole story. You're like, and I tripped and I dislocated my shoulder and then I had surgery. I was like, well, I don't even know this medical history. <laughs> oh, it's not that exciting. Um, when I think about you as a musician and it's hard to separate you as a musician from Jonathan, the individual, because, um, not that it's an identity thing, but that you just completely engross yourself in the thing that you are passionate about. And you've made it very clear for a long time that you are a, like, you are an arrow flying very focused <laughs> towards something. I get distracted all the time thinking about like, oh, this is fun. Let's explore this idea and this idea. And um, you're you're very you're very very focused and you're one of the hardest working people that i know oh thank you i think it's probably because you're doing something that that fills your spirit i'm sure that there's exhausting aspects of it but like you are you're you're just like leaning in hard to something that you know is giving back to you um like hopefully long-term, but also immediately, like you are really, um, I, I think about people being fuller versions of themselves, but I, I wonder how do, uh, and there's a couple questions here, not just avoiding burnout, but I imagine that you get a lot done because you don't stop working. I, I was a chubby kid growing up, right? Um, I got picked on for all that, whatever. Don't think about it. I don't even remember the faces of the dudes who did it. Like I said, I don't hang on to that stuff. I went to my dad and I was like, Dad, I don't want to be a chubby kid anymore. He's like, cool. Stop drinking sweet tea, Gatorade, and sodas and go run on treadmill. I was like, well, what am I supposed to drink? This is South Carolina. Sweet tea's life with a Y, you know what I mean? Life. He's like, water. And like, what is that? How do you spell it? He was just like, it was the way I was grown up is just like, if you don't like something, change it. Like, go do it. And he, he wasn't like a special forces dude about it where he was like uber intense. He was just like, okay, well like, here's what you can do. Like, go do it. And my dad's the king of like, you know, if you didn't, like, he always says, you know, and then pauses like dramatically. And my sisters just give him such a hard time about it. But um, I just took it to heart. And then in, in I think a I, kind of way of like, if you want it hard enough, if you want it, like, here's the answer. But well, if, you, and, if you want it, go get it. If you don't, that's up like that's in that's in your court. Yeah. But also, like, don't talk to me about it if you're not going to put in the effort was yeah. kind of his like the subtext, not in a not in a heartless way, but in like a. Well, go, here you go, bud. Like, go do it. Like, like you know the roadmap. Yeah, it's it's in, it's in your power. And I think that journey taught me a lot. Um, 
I found ways to, I hated working out at first, hated it. And I found ways to turn it into a game and I found ways to find joy in something I didn't like. Now it's still one of my favorite hobbies. And you know, you just turn it into a game. I would like cover up the, the front of like the screen of the treadmill and I would run until I felt like I was gonna pass out and then I'd pull it off and I'd finish the mile wherever I was. If it was like 1.01, uh-huh. then I'd have to run 0. 0.99, yeah. you know? Like yeah. I had to finish, it was a game. Like if you can't do this, you're weak. Like it was a, like I gamified it. And that kind of laid the foundation for me to, and then I keep, you know, you, uh, a dude I know from my hometown is named Bert Soren. And he owns a company called Sorenex, it's a fitness company. And his dad started it and then he took it online and like really diversified their portfolio and kept on pushing the new things. And he, um, he had this parable he told me where he was like, you know, he's like, I went on a podcast the other day and they're like, man, this is amazing. You like doing, making huge waves in the fitness industry. Like, what's your secret? And he was like, secret? They're like, yeah, like, what are, you, what are you doing? Like, Sornex is killing it, blah, blah, blah. You guys are like knocking on the door rogue. Like, how are you guys doing it? He's like, dude, like, he's like, let me explain what I do every day. He's like, I get up, I work out, I parent my kids, I go to work and I put in a day's work. He's like, and it's like having a stream in the, your backyard. You go and you, every day you go and you throw a pebble in. And even though you can't see it, every day you do that, you're changing the velocity of the water and you're changing the whole pattern of the water, but you can't see it until 10 years of doing that every day, you've dammed up the river. Yeah. And it's like that. Like there are days like, I'm like, I don't feel like playing guitar today and I'll go and play. And some days I won't. Some days I'll, I'll work on lyrics or I'll just listen to music. Hmm. Um, I, I, I just, I want to be, like you said, like if you're an arrow, like I want to, it's not that I start every day empty, like with no achievement, but I want to push the ball one step further down the road. I want to put my pebble yeah, in the stream every day so that when I, before you realize it, um, you can really accomplish some cool stuff. Like I made a list of songs I wrote this past year and I've got like 15 fully done and like 20 like in various stages. And that wasn't like co-writes. Those were all solos. Yeah. Like just from starting stuff and chasing, chasing the rabbits, what I call it. And, and it's like, just because I show up, like 90% of life is showing up. Right. And, and you're doing that. Like, I remember the first time you and I had dinner and talked about your art and you're like, I don't feel fulfilled. This is what I want to do. And I didn't know you as an artist. I'd never even seen your art yet. And I was like, deal, let's roll. And we sat and brainstormed for like a couple of hours about how you could do it, like where you could make money on it. And, and not that every money's everything, but if you want something to be a perpetuating thing, you have to find a way to monetize it, right? If you want it to, it, it's hard to explain to non-artistic people how much time it takes to come up with art. 
And you'll hear stories like uh, Ryan Tedder wrote Halo in like you know, 20 minutes or whatever, or whatever song it was, one of the huge ones, like 20 minutes. It's like, yeah, but how many days has he bashed his head against the wall to write a song that wasn't even, wasn't even there? Or how many days did he practice his instrument to where he was fluid enough to come up with it? You know, how many, how many days did he just listen to music so he had enough? Because if you don't have enough different things coming in, you're going to sound derivative. So like, you always take me down these like beautiful shoegazy, like indie rock excursions of sound, like sonic spelunking. Like, y'all, we spent an hour earlier playing with guitar pedals. And shout out to the, the East Tennessee cats at Hologram, because that dream sequence thing, I'm coming for you. You will get my monies. And Caroline Guitar Company from my like resident city near my hometown, Columbia, South Carolina, coming for you. Somersault blew my mind. Never wanted a chorus effect until that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not just Soundgarden tones, y'all. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I was thinking about habit and structure and you were talking about how whether you feel like it or not you know six out of seven days you're gonna sit down and play guitar you're going to work at your craft well and it's also like the showing upness it's one of those things where and i don't know why people like my brain's like this and i think everyone is to some extent where you procrastinate on things you love just because you feel like being rebellious I love painting. I hate starting to, to paint. paint. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. It's like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to start just yet. Like, let me make another coffee. Like, I don't want to start just yet. Like, oh, don't you want to go for a walk? Like, do you, you want to like, binge some TV? Yeah. And like, binging TV is a really dangerous way to do it because it's a hard thing to get out of. Um, at least for me, with an addictive personality. Quicksand, like, known as Netflix. Yeah, you know, like, I can't. I have to really discipline myself to be like, no, I'm not. I don't need that right now. Like, I don't need that. There are sometimes, like, if I play guitar for a long time, my ears are ringing a little bit. Like, I just want to zone out and read a book or something that I will, and I'll just kind of veg out. Well, there was an artist that I was... I don't, I don't remember exactly who it was, but they were saying that the way that they tricked themselves into drawing, they loved drawing. They did hours and hours of illustrative drawing. Um, and the way that they tricked themselves was, I have to simply make a mark on a page. Like, to, I, I want to draw every day. He had a commitment to drawing for like, 90 days straight or something and yeah. he's like all i have to do i don't have to draw anything other than sit down and make a mark on a page and of course once you start drawing lines making marks putting like pen or pencil to paper yeah, it's a downhill your rocks downhill yeah how do yeah. you take like you have recently put all of your guitars out on racks in your in your studio room yeah and that takes out what I, I mean, the entry barrier, that's what we're talking about. I think a lot about this, the the entry barrier of creating. Yeah. When I have my, like when I have my, my, my tools in a, like even if they are um, like put away in a neat fashion, if they are in a drawer somewhere, I, 
I won't use them as much as if I have them readily available. Um, like taking your guitars out of your cases and having them all accessible. Like the amount of work, it's 10 seconds of work to unlock a guitar case and take the guitar out, but you have them now accessible where you can grab it whenever you want. Yeah, I don't taking like that, guitars in cases. It just, it's out of sight, out of mind, you know? And But the, even just the effort of like, oh man, I got to take that guitar out of its case. That's 10 seconds of work. And it's a dead case you'll sitting never, around. And but it, you'll never do it. People are so, like, we as people are so, it's so easy in a digital age to scratch that itch another way. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I know tons of, of my friends, and I'll even do it sometimes. I'll go down a black hole, like, looking up a guitar amp that I'm interested in, and I'll, like, watch all these demo videos. And I won't play guitar for two hours. Cause I'm watching these videos of someone playing guitar as if you're simulating yourself. In, right. In, and it's like, I'm kind yeah. of scratching the itch, but I'm kind of not. And it's like, yeah, it's the, weird. And the it's, worst thing for me is when I like, when I don't have a painting on the table or on the, the easel or something like having something in progress where I'm just like, Oh shit, I gotta go fix. I got, I got, I have to go finish that. Yeah. Like that thing is in progress. Constantly having multiple things in progress is both the most stressful and the best thing because because you can bounce between them you can bounce between them but you also don't have the <clears throat> whole lag of i have to get started yeah it's yeah it's um starting is sometimes the hardest thing but also and i don't know about you musically with this but i when you play guitar professionally for people you have to play note for note what's on the record. Yeah, At I don't least know the anything first about that. time you meet people. I don't know anything about that. And then you can change it and do it. I was never a note for note learner. I was a horrible guitar student. I would learn half a song and then I'd get distracted because it would inspire me to write something else. So I've never been really good at learning things note for note. I've had to develop that and I had to to make money. It's because I'm not good at learning other people's songs note for note. All I have to do to get myself starting writing is sit down and try to learn like a classic song. And then I'll get totally distracted and then I'll start writing a song. Hmm. That's my way to like trick myself. That's fascinating. And like. <laughs> so like if you're avoiding writing, you'll start learning. If, if for some reason I don't feel like writing, I will turn on uh, this morning. I turned on Mark Ronson. Yeah. Like his record he put out in 2019 with uh, uh, that Miley Cyrus heartbreak song or whatever that had like the 80s vibes to it. Sure. Turn on that record, just jammed along with it. Ended up like deep down a rabbit hole, turned it off. I was somewhere totally different because like some people are afraid of if they start with an existing song and ends up derivative. I end up somewhere on a different continent from the song I started in. I'll start in Mark Ronson and the song will come out and it feels like like Stone Temple Pilots meets Royal Blood. You know what I mean? Like and you're like, how did you get there? And it's like, I don't I don't know how my brain works. It's definitely not linearly. And embracing that has been the dopest thing for me as a creator. And also Rick Rubin, who is an incredible producer. He's produced everyone from uh, Bob Dylan to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, some of their my favorite stuff of theirs, to Ed Sheeran. And his sure. whole thing is like, do not judge it as you're making art. 
Do not try to figure out where you're going to market it or figure out what genre it is as you're making it. Just make it. Yeah. The song will tell you. Yeah. And it sounds really woo-woo on the outside until you're in the moment <clears throat> and you're writing a song and you're like, uh, yeah, but I need it to be more like more country or more like whatever. And then you find yourself losing the inspiration slowly but surely you're because you're tugging back on the reins you're not it's not actually going where it could go and you've already done this irreparable damage to the song and it's writing a song is so much like john mayer refers to it as um he pretends it's a song until it is a song like he writes it he keeps singing it as if it's already a song and that's his way of not talking himself out of what it is. He doesn't try to judge it. And he left a lot up for the interpretation, but that's just his vibe. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what he meant by that. But the way I took that was like, he just boldly chases the song until it reveals itself. You know, like there's a song in there and it's it's a it's a gumbo of all of your influences and all of the emotions that you're feeling in that moment, but also... If you have an active imagination like myself, it's wherever that character in the song is, right? And you're just like, I love fiction. Love it. Love reading it. Love, like, so I just love it. So a lot of times, like, songs I write, I haven't lived, but but it's real. And it's a real feeling. And in that character, in that moment, that's what it is. And and I'm so immersed in it when I when I come up for air after writing the song, I'm like, whoa, that dude went through a lot. You know? <laughs> it's like the dude never existed, but you know, it's like I yeah. imagine it's what John Grisham feels. <laughs> you know, like his his is way more thought out. And I only have to do like four minutes. So, you know, party on. But Yeah, it's the immersion thing that's super interesting though, right? Like the tunnel vision. You get that when you're painting, right? Yeah. Um, I want to stop thinking about myself. Mm -hmm. And I want to stop thinking about whether it's good or bad because that's not it. I'm just trying to I'm trying to chase it as hard as possible mm -hmm. while I have it. Um, and some of that, like maybe John Mayer was talking about, is just like you're gonna you're gonna find the inspiration so why not believe it's already there yeah and it's also like it is there like you know it's there you're gonna talk yourself out of it and say it's not yeah you there. can psych yourself out of it but that's but, not yeah. helpful but you just like one foot in front of the other you know and just do it until you're so inside of it that like all you have to do is to like you don't have to sell it to somebody else. You have to see it clearer than anyone else. Or just trust that it's around the next corner. Yeah. Yeah. But like, let's differentiate between you being a hard worker and what I think of as the hustle and grind culture, which I, I don't like. <laughs> so if I had a neon sign above here that said grind, like above my studio. You grind, bro. I would probably not be doing this right now. Even though you've talked extensively about Mel Gibson and your love of him, I still probably would not have done this. Why you gotta why you gotta put Mel down like that? He looked great with a ponytail. This is a this is a conversation going downhill. 
But let's differentiate for a second between this whole Im- improving and learning and self-awareness and understanding that it's the hard work that gets you somewhere and the hustle and grind culture. Doesn't, but it doesn't feel like that to me. I enjoy every day of it. And I think enjoying a choice, but, you know, <clears throat> I um, I was watching a video because I was like feeling a little stagnant yesterday. I was like, I just want some little guitar sauce. So I was watching a Mark Knopfler video, like an interview. And he was talking about how he separates his thumb and like how he can do the Chet Atkins style thumb uh-huh. separate yeah. picking. And I've never really fully immersed myself. I found ways to get around it, but I'm like, I don't fully do like the the separate thing. And I was like, maybe I should get into that. And the way he said it, he was like, it's like water skiing, like you're garbage at first, but once you get up on the water, it's cool. And I was like, what a cool way to look at it. Mm. That's why he was great is because he looked at it like water skiing. And he's like, I just want to get up today. And if I get up, maybe I'll go around the bay tomorrow. And then maybe, you know, and, Mm. you know, Mark Knopfler is an incredible guitar player. And that he was incredible because he looked at it that way. And so I, I, why reinvent the wheel when we can look at how our heroes did it and what propelled them, you know? So it's But just, it sounds really honest. I think that's the important thing is like, not just like a hero's take, but maybe he's a hero because he was able to look at it honestly and be honest with himself about it and say, the point isn't to be a star at it. The point is to learn how to get up on the on the on the skis yeah i have found so much relief and so much fun and enjoyment and pseudo purpose but really enjoyment from playing guitar if i can inspire other dudes who are like me who are like quirky maybe know a lot of people surface level but have a handful of good friends give them an outlet to play guitar and have something that they can grow in for their entire lives dope mission accomplished and i feel like i've already kind of done that to a certain extent like i know a a couple guys so it doesn't feel like a grind because i already feel successful in that regard like (laughs) i don't feel like your definition of impact changes right yeah yeah like i i can show someone five chords on guitar and change their life I can play a show. This is why I love playing live music and I'm anxious for it to come back. But but also I'm trusting that it's going to come back at the right time. Like, you know, I've been releasing my own music. I may not have I may not end up touring for other people near as much as I did prior to COVID because I've had an entire year of not to give my undivided attention to my own music and be faced with here is something only you can control. Are you going to sit on your tail or are you going to go do something about it? Well, I guess before COVID, your main gig was working with Jesse. Yeah, and, and anyone who called me. And anyone who called you, sure. Yeah, but you so, were you were reliably playing with Jesse. Yeah, and as Jesse James Decker. Thank you. Yeah. And <laughs> to clarify, not for you, but for the listeners. She reminds me of my sister Kat so much. They're very similar in personalities on in a personal level like different but similarly enough that when i met jesse i was like oh this is what it would be like to be in a family band i i credit that to why i'm such good friends with eric her husband is because like 
she already she felt like a sister to me instantly because she reminded me of my sister Catherine. They're that, different. That's but, pretty cool. Yeah, it was instantly like, oh, like I could have grown up with you, like dope. But not touring with her and not playing with her so regularly, like you were you were working on your own solo songwriting and, and recording. When I took her gig, when I took her gig, I was full tilt starting a band right yeah um and i was gonna start a band and then the drummer whose name's cole mcsween he moved out of town fantastic drummer oh so good we miss you talented dude one of my favorite people i've ever co-written with in my entire life just oozes music and funk incredible wealth of knowledge limit there's a guy who grows every day like Humble. when I see peers who I'm like, I have to improve so I don't let them down. Yeah. Because he's not. He's not yeah. not improving. Like Cole is growing every day. Um, but he moved to Atlanta and I, my keyboard player buddy, Jeff, sweet Hefe. I call him Hefe because that means boss in Spanish. And he's the most humble and meek person and monstrously talented where he could be assertive, but instead is just so chill that it's just, I enjoy the juxtaposition. But um, he took a gig playing for Midland. And so he was going to be gone the whole year. And then my buddy, Steve, the bass player was like, he's like, John, you should just like, you should just put it out as your own thing, man. Like, just, just call us. And if we're around, we'll play. But like, it doesn't have to be a band. Like you wrote all these songs, like you go do your thing. And I was struck by their humility in it. And so I pulled back from doing the band thing and put it out as my first EP. But it was just the four of us. No no extra layers of overdubs or anything. It was just us. And I produced it out of our the house we were renting in Sylvan Park. And it was just dope. And so that kind of started the trajectory, right? And the guys talked to me about that. And I called all of them, made sure I got their blessing to do it as solo. Um, after I'd already done the Jesse tour and like so I was on the Jesse tour and I was thinking about releasing it but I pushed it back because I you know you obviously can't promote something when you're touring for someone else and but I really needed the money at the time and it was a cool opportunity it was a uh, got to play the beacon in New York which is like the Allman Brothers sold it out over 250 times and I just needed to do it and I felt I'm very much a trust my gut and never second think it so I was just like, yeah, I need to do it. Like I'd, I was playing a gig with a guy named Drew Baldridge. We were playing this place in Illinois. And I mean, it was not sexy, not a sexy gig. No, no offense to anyone there. But anyway, he was going on radio tour and I sang a lot of backgrounds. I had assumed, I had assumed I was going on radio tour with him. So when I saw all this stuff pop up on the calendar for May, I thought, I'm going on radio tour. So I'd blocked it off. I'd said no to other things thinking we were going on radio tour. And that night, right before we went on, I was like, hey man, so uh what did they what's the deal with the radio tour thing? Like it started like two weeks from that day, right? And I was like, what's the deal with the radio tour thing? Like when are we leaving? Like, what's the details? And he's like, Oh, I'm taking so and so, the other guitar player. He's like, Nobody told you? And I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> We're like about to go play this show. And I literally send up a bullet prayer. And I'm the king of like Hail, Hail Mary prayers. Sorry, Lord. Um, constant like, God, help me pay rent. And <laughs> he 
he always does, man. But I was literally like, dear God, give me a gig. I've said no to everything for the next three months, thinking I was going to make it easy grand a week on this radio tour thing. And I went and played the gig. And I got off stage and I had a voicemail from, well, I had a text right before I walked on stage from my buddy, Mark, who has single-handedly referred me for more, more work than anyone else in this town. Incredibly great acoustic guitar player, electric guitar player, singer, producer, engineer. He's staff engineer for Warner Chapel. He's just a monster musician. And Mark Lonsway, he's like, hey, can I, can I forward your info to the Jesse James Decker camp? Like they're looking for somebody. And I was like, bro, I just, I didn't get let go, but I'm not on this thing. Yes. <laughs> and then I go and play this gig and I'm like, Lord, please bless that. Like I just, I need them. How are we going to pay rent? Um, and then I got, I had a voicemail from the other guitar player on the gig. His name was Alex. And he was literally trying to talk me out of the gig while telling me about the gig. He's like, Hey man, I don't know if you want to do this, but like, I understand if you don't, but we really need someone. A rehearsal starting a week and a half. And like, and I literally called him back at midnight and I was like, Hey man, I left him a voicemail. I was like, Hey dude, sorry. It's so late. I was on stage with Drew Baldridge. I would love to talk to you. Call me whenever you wake up in the morning, period. He calls me at 7.30 a.m. Drew has a sprinter with bunks in it. Now, the difference between a sprinter with bunks and a bus with bunks is buses have airbag shocks. Sprinters have shock shocks, meaning you do not sleep in a sprinter with bunks. You get like, it's, it's a far, it's a huge step up from a van seat, but a step down from a bus. Um, so anyway, I wasn't really sleeping. So I kind of like napped a couple hours and then uh, got the call. And we all alternated who drove the Sprinter with Drew as well. Not my most restful tour. And yet Drew, playing with Drew, has this bright light in the past because he was such a good dude. Like character-wise, one of the best people I've ever played for. Like maybe the best like just the sweetest anyway so um he calls me we set it up the tour manager sees it and who's now my dear friend rob Murhati. um he's dope anyway he didn't, did not want to hire me for the gig because he looked at my instagram and our church had just released a record that i played on because i go to church and volunteer in the band and he's like Student only plays in Christian music. Like, we can't have that. So he calls me and he's like, hey, man, like, uh, just so you know, like, sometimes people use bad words on buses. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, shit, that ain't gonna bother me. And, like, <laughs> and it was just like, I could feel the tension in him drain out. I remember, uh, uh, talking to Rob about Jesse and her day-to-day -day manager, Matt, had looked at it, and it was between me and a friend of mine, Dane Kinzer, who, in a lot of styles, is a better guitar player than me. Um, I think my background vocals are stronger, um, but he's great. And I think they looked at it, and they were like, I like his hair better. <laughs> and they pointed at me, and I think that's how I got the gig. <laughs> And Dane's social media handle was stage right guitar, and they wanted me on stage left. 
So those were like the deciding factors. It was like my Instagram feed That's ridiculous. showed me singing. So That's they're ridiculous. like, he sings really well. I like his hair a little bit better. And the other guy says stage right guitar and we're going to put him on stage left. Like it, <laughs> you can be as good as you want kids, but just know you never know how you're going to get the gig or why. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you literally never know. So anyway, I get the call and that all works. And then it was funny. Rob was like, what kind of what kind of amp do you want? And I was like, I don't know. What kind of amp do you guys have? He's like, oh, you don't have like a special one you need? And I was like, I don't know. Just list some off. And he listed like the first three. And I was like, those second two will work. Like <laughs> just have one as a backup. Just some Fender amps. And he's like, Gibson wants to like have this tour. So like. What guitar do you want from Gibson? I was like, no, I don't play loners. And like, that was an email. <clears throat> and then he was like, bro, they really want this tour. Like, send me what you want. And I was like, man. And I typed this out. I was like, man, I, I'm not trying to be difficult, but I'm really emotional about guitars. Like, I don't like to put memories on guitars I don't own. Um, that being said, they do make the best guitar in the market like the best production guitar. It's a 1959 vintage original spec reissue. Les Paul. It's the best guitar made. Um, and you have a lot of guitars, but you didn't have a Les Paul at that I point. I did not, because I'd never found a guitar that played like that. And I'd played Dwayne's Les Paul in a session in Macon, Georgia. Man, that guy quoted, to said to Barry Oakley, like when they were talking about quick, Allman Brothers. Quick break here. The rest of the podcast will be an Allman Brothers take. <laughs> Dwayne literally said to Barry, and he was like, enjoy it now because the money will come and the fun will stop when the band was doing it. So this is a guy who never invoiced Clapton for the Derek and the Dominoes record that he played on. Like, incredible. Everything I want to be when I grow up. Um, Even though he passed away at 24 and a half. Like, he literally just grew into the man I want to be when I grow up at like 19 and just stayed there. Anyway, um... Yeah. Wow. What a stud. He's my mouse pad, by the way. <laughs> what? I have a picture of him on my mouse pad. So I remember not to sandbag it whenever I'm tracking. Because he just loved music. You know? Like, that's all I want to be. It's, you go to school for music business and you get a little obsessed with, like, you know, bargain for exchange. Like, I'm playing guitar on this, but what do I get? And it doesn't work like that. Like, I played on one of Jesse's songs. And I got paid for it like over a year later because the label decided to pick it up. But I played on it because she was like, our live version's better than the recording, what's up? And I was like, well, I added this guitar part because it needed some sauce. And she's like, oh, will you put that on it? And I was like, sure. And while I was at it, I paid a buddy of mine to put real drums on there. Mm. They re-recorded Grady's drums, the producer did. I think just so he wouldn't have to co-produce it, which is fine. I don't care. It's not a pride thing for me. I just wanted Jesse's song to sound like she wanted it to sound. And, you know, like music's music's emotional, you know? Like you want something to sound as good as it sounds live so that artist feels proud of it. Yeah. Like I don't care about credit. Like it's whatever, man. Like people don't remember what you do. They remember how you make them feel. So it doesn't matter. So anyway, so added that and then the label like calls me up and sends me a check for it like 
12 months later, exactly when I needed the money. Like, way I needed the money way more than I needed it <laughs> when I played on it. So it's just, uh, ain't that the way it works? But um, anyway, to circle back on the Gibson thing, uh, they sent me a 59 VOS, vintage original spec. So, like, even the plastic's the same, bro. And they sent it to our first show in Denver which started my love affair with Gibson Guitars and Raven, and who is one of the artist reps there out of the LA office. And she's just a total gem of a human being. Just cares, man. Like they don't have to care about someone who plays guitar for someone. They don't have to. But I mean, she especially treats, like a hired hand, like your name's not on the bill. She treats me like I'm Steve Vai, bro. Like she treats me like I'm the guy. And she's so sweet, not in like a, like a weird ostentatious like arm's length way but in like a whatever you need way and that, that's just the thing it's like i don't keep it's not about like what guitar she sends me to play or whatever like it's really how she makes me feel and so anytime i'm in la i try to go by and swing and take her coffee and like go hang out and talk to her and i'm sure she's like oh Wyndham's coming over to the studio again guess we won't get anything done for 45 minutes but <laughs> They work hard there. Um, but yeah, she's just a, such a total gem. Like, and I grew up playing strats, but, and it's no slam to the people at Fender, but they don't have a Ray. Like no one, no one's gone out of their way to, to check on me, you know? And it's not to say that I need that from a guitar company, but I didn't know I even wanted it. Hmm. But once you have that, it's like, I literally played, I took my Strat and my Les Paul Jr. on the tour. The only time I played a different note on the, uh, note on anything other than the Les Paul was someone had had that guitar out on loan. And I told Ray if she ever wanted to back to send me an invoice. Cause like, I can't, I put too many miles on it. It's gotta be mine. Um, the, the Strat pin fell out because I put in a Schaller strap lock. And so I had to put um, toothpicks and wood glue and then tighten up the strap pin. And I remember like our openers, Sister Bros, uh, Sisterhood Band on Sony, um, the mom, Alyssa's mom was there and she's like, nobody's gonna help you with that? I was like, no, it's fine. Like I tagged my own stuff. She's like, really? And she was kind of like, I could tell she was just surprised I was doing it myself. I don't know if she was like, somebody else should be helping you or whatever. But then she <laughs> she held the flashlight for me, so she was real sweet about it. It was cool. I called her to her mom. But I was letting the glue dry. And so I was like, I shouldn't play it tonight. Like, I did that in the afternoon. Like, it fell out when we were jamming at Soundcheck, which I'm a huge fan of jamming at Soundcheck. I'm sure crew hates it. But I have to get all my bad ideas out because I go off on rabbit trails live because I do not think any two shows should be identical. I think you should be pushing the limits. That way, if someone catches a double like super fans do, they get something fresh. Mm. And it's also for you guys so you don't get so we don't get in ruts. So and that includes like pulling as much stuff out of tracks as possible, which I know managers hate, but. I mean, Jesse got a record deal after our New York show and I pulled everything out of the tracks. I mixed the tracks on my laptop and I pulled everything out, but like light organ in a couple songs, female BGVs and like shakers. That was it. It was fine. It was, it was great. 
She got a record deal from that. And there was like almost nothing running in tracks, <laughs> which is huge because plot twist, you don't have tracks for covers. So if you want your covers to land, you can't have a track size hole in the mix. Like <laughs> you can't mix around tracks. You can't like not if you're going to be a rock band. If your people can't play, that's a different thing. And then it's just problem solving. But tracks are not a good insurance policy because it, it dumbs everything down to where the musicians start going on autopilot and they start giving you some some JV stuff. You want your musicians to, in my opinion, jam after sound check, push each other's limits and try to impress each other. Because then when the audience takes a visual break from the star and they see the bass player and guitar player trying to impress each other and the guitar player locking in with the, the drummer's hi-hat hand and like adding extra rhythms or whatever or the bass player leaving stuff out and coming in on a catch and making everybody go ah! in the band. Uh, that's the sauce. That's what's missing. Personal opinion. So <laughs> huge passion about live music. I literally produce music just so I can go play live. <laughs> Not that I don't love the studio, but I love live to get to play the same songs every night for different people and to have them trust you with it's expensive to go to shows. You have dinner, you have two tickets. So two tickets at 10 bucks a piece, even if you're cheap. And you go to dinner, you go to Buffalo Wild Wings, it's $40 for a couple to go. So you're at 60 bucks plus $10 for parking, you're at 70 bucks. So even if you don't have a sitter, you've invested $70 in that night. And if you do well, there's 30 bucks in merch. So that's a hundred bucks. And if you're out of town, there's a hotel. So there's another hundred. Like, Anywhere from 70 to $500 people have invested in this night. And all they want you to do is not suck. Like, <laughs> all they want you to do is make them forget about their bills. For 90 minutes or more. And I'm a huge fan of more. <laughs> like, I'm kind of let down when headliners only play 70 to 90 minutes. I'm like, really? If that was a movie, I'd kind of want my money back. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, how do you feel about length of shows? I mean, I'm there for a reason. I'm spending my whole, like, my night's blocked for yeah. a reason, right? It's not like you book something after this. I love a good Like, when, I, when I'm at a show, like, I've been to shows at the Ryman. People are chanting for an encore, and it doesn't happen. And I think I'm like, are you serious? You're it's, at the Ryman, and they want, no, yeah. and you're not? Yeah, but when you're the headliner, you can't just come out and sing one song. Like, just you alone. Are you that gassed? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know. I Maybe it's because I worked so many blue collar jobs like moving furniture growing up to, to get money to buy guitars and play for free. It's just like, you wanna hear me play? Okay, well let's go until they cut the sound off. Like. I had a dream the other night I got kicked off of like a, I was last night, I had a dream like I was playing like some talk show and I kept playing covers for the crowd after we'd already done the airing. And they like were like, get out. You need to leave because we can't get these people to leave. And I was like, they came for a show. <laughs> They're like, get, go home. <laughs> One thing I did want to point out and, and talk about is the fact that you have like, we talked about the whole hustle and grind concept, the whole 
centering your life around the creative pursuit. And I feel like there's a real like measuring of balances that has to happen because for your wife to let you turn the living room into a studio or that's what I'm getting yeah. at. That's <laughs> what I'm getting at because you've allowed music to become such a central pivoting point in your life and it not become an overbearing thing in your life where you can still breathe. I don't think I'm the type to get suffocated. I don't see music like, for instance, if I'm playing guitar for someone or I'm playing on a session, I don't come home and say, oh, I don't want to play music. I'm exhausted from playing music. I come home excited to play what I want to play because I've been playing something else all day long. Sure. And yeah, it's just, it's like I can't. And I have other outlets. Like there's other things like I love. But music has just always been that constant companion. And yeah, I don't know. It's just so much a part of me. I couldn't, I can't imagine life without it. And I think that it helps that uh, Ainsley and I were so tight as friends and we communicated so well before we got married or anything like that. So she understood like, and I remember the conversation I had with her. Where it was like, this is gonna sound like totally heartless, but I've got to do this. It's a part of me. And if you wanna move forward with this relationship, I just need to know that you know that. And that we're we're on the same trajectory together. Cause I don't want to set you up for for a rude awakening when you realize that this is not a passing thing for me. Yeah, it's hard to see that as heartless and not just honest about um your reality and and you know, the big pie chart that makes up Jonathan. And we had that early. It was <laughs> we've been dating like four months. Or like something. there's a reason that like we're sitting we're not in your studio out back. Your living room in the front of your little ranch home. Which, yeah, where the door open, the front door opens up into this room. It's not a huge house. We're no. sitting here in your ranch little house in the living room. And there's like 13 guitars in this room right now. Yeah. It's been fun to see how you've been able to balance working for people, working for yourself as a musician, separating yourself as Jonathan the friend, the husband, and Jonathan, the musician, and and seeing that you've been given yourself, you've been giving yourself space to explore that space, right? I, I hope so. Um, I try to, I remember, and it's the last old, like, growing up story I'll give you, but there was a... And that's our time, folks. And that's our time, folks. I, one of my chores growing up was mowing the lawn. And one time we had a riding mower because nah, it was three and a half acres and a riding mower. It was cake. Um, but I didn't want to do it. I wanted to play guitar, right? Teenager. I did a less than stellar job of it. I had the lawn mower, riding mower going as fast as possible. Every other row. Well, it's not that. It's just like if you drive too quickly, the the wind from the from the mower knocks down the grass so it cuts very unevenly it's like someone getting up giving themselves a bad COVID haircut right i go inside and go back to like playing guitar or 
reading or whatever. I was, I think I was playing guitar because I remember my dad walking in, turning the amp on standby because it was a tube amp. And he was like, hey, why don't you go back and mow the grass again and this time use your whole ass. And it was just like, <laughs> and then he walked away. And it was like one of those little zingers where I was like, whew, I, I hear his voice in my head all the time saying that. Um, you know, I, it'll be something I don't really feel like doing. And it'll be like, I can just hear, I can see myself doing it halfway. And then I can hear my dad like, why don't you do that again and use your whole ass. And it's like, I just, I'm just, I'm all about, I, I would rather, it's gotten to the point where I would rather not do something than do something halfway. And it's, sometimes it's exhausting because I'll end up spending two weeks building a patio table for Ainsley because she picked out one and we can't afford five grand for a patio table, but I can figure out how to make it. And then it turns into this two week process where I'm doing like a custom flex seal dip on the feet, and you know, <laughs> cause I'm like, what if they rust? And yeah, anyway, <laughs> like I can't, I can't turn it off. Um, and it's like that with music too. Like, you know, I'm like into it and I'm like, Oh, what if I use an API preamp and like, what makes these these consoles great? What did what did Queen use? And like, I'm a huge historian, so I like to know like what outboard gear people used and what about that? What overtones? And like, I have this shout out to SE microphones. I love you. I have a Rupert Neve tube mic at the house, and it is it has the transformer, the Rupert Neve transformers, like in the consoles. And man, bro, my in, in Pro Tools, they call it a vocal chain, right? The things that you go through. My vocal chain went from like five plugins to nothing. It It's that big a deal. Yes, it's like a $3,000 microphone. Worth it. Everything sounds amazing. You let that puppy warm up for 20 minutes and then you turn it on and it's like, ah, Aretha Franklin. <laughs> like, I want to know like what makes it special and, you know, like... You gotta know how people got there. If you, here's my thing. If we, it's a really, it's a hot button topic to say bands that sound a lot like, take, there's a band, Greta Van Fleet. They catch a lot of crap because they sound a lot like Led Zeppelin. I don't mind that they sound like Led Zeppelin. I love Led Zeppelin. I'm actually pumped that kids are liking bands that sound like Led Zeppelin. However, I know that their duty as a band is to, to somehow find a way to take what Led Zeppelin did and take it one step further down the line, or else they will always be thought of as a derivative act. But once they, if they can find a producer or they can find it within themselves, which is even better, to find a way to take what Led Zeppelin did and take it in a different direction or a different vibe or somehow go somewhere Led didn't go, then they will they will have carved out the perfect place for themselves. And that's, you're not a derivative work if you hearken back to the people you love, like Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin and the Allman Brothers Band. And But the audience deserves something worthy of them listening to you and not just going back and listening to those records. Like if you don't want to be a bar band and you don't want to be derivative, take it a next step. And like, I don't find myself, I'm pumped that those dudes are having success in their early 20s. 
But I hope they don't sit back. I hope they see it as a challenge and they can go and take it somewhere that Zep didn't even go because they have different technology. Like they, they don't have the same limitations on themselves. They also have YouTube. You can learn some crazy guitar stuff very quickly because of YouTube. Which is also like, I know we're trying to wrap this up, but like that's the difficult thing too is like we have a responsibility and weight on our shoulders to somehow take it further because we have the capacity, the information, the ability that aren't we more responsible? Okay, so so that that's hard. That's like a catch twenty two. Is it? But is it further too? Because okay, here's another thing. Tom Petty's biography. I didn't read. It, I listened to it on tape, and it was done. It was written by. I listened to a lot of books on tape because I like driving around, and my dog loves the car. Bo loves the car, dude. Dog loves to read. <laughs> he loves to read, man. Wow. Um. Uh. The biographer was on a tour with them, right? And it was the biographer's band who I've forgotten. Um, and then a band. Uh, oh, what band is that? Uh, got a little chain in my pocket going jing-a-ling-a-ling. Are you on the telephone, baby? Georgia Satellites. So biographer's band, Georgia Satellites, with Keep Your Hands to Yourself. They were supporting that single. And Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were headlining. And Tom Petty watched, and the biographer was like the front man of this band. And so he's talking to Tom, and they're sitting side stage, and they're watching more girls freak out over the Georgia satellites than Tom Petty and the Heartbreak. And the biographer said that Tom said in passing, we're all worried about being relevant. Sometimes the best thing is just go out and play great fucking rock and roll. And it was like, yeah. That's all they did. They actually went backwards to do the right thing, which was just simple. Dun 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 dun. dun, 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 dun you know, like, I love that song. Um, we used to play it at honky tonks all the time when I played on Broadway. That was a hit. You know, you you hear stuff like that, and I remember when I heard that. Tom Petty's always been like a. He's just been a lighthouse for me like a barometer check like if you and i still can't avoid it from google so i won't pretend like it didn't happen but i was on the voice a few years back and when i when it happened and this is like seven years ago it's ancient history there's been like 80 seasons of it since then um and at this point the voice feels like the troubadour like everyone plays it if you play music you played the troubadour you know what i mean and it's like if you sing you've been on the voice or one of those shows it just it's like our Cutting the teeth, honky tonk of Los of Los Angeles, but that's um, hilarious. I, that's what it feels like to me. Anyway, when I was on it, Tom Petty did a Rolling Stone interview, and he was like, "I'm tired of all these kids trying to go on these reality shows, sing karaoke, and skip to the front of the line, like sack up and get in a van and and slug through it like the rest of us." I remember calling my dad in tears, like, "I want to go home." And he was like, "Son, like you made your bed." You need to ride it out and see what happens. And it was like when I got off, I, I, I did fine. But when I got off, I wasn't upset about that either. Because I was like, well, at least my role models, my heroes will will not hate me. Hmm. You know? And so it's like, it it honestly, like it, it wrecked me in the moment. But it also made it super sweet when I got off. Yeah. Because it was like, oh, thank God. 
What's the point of winning if Tom Petty's gonna hate me? I'll never have the respect of my peers, which as I've lived, I've realized that matters more to me than I ever would have thought. That's interesting. Like my legacy. I had a metaphor, like I kind of landed on the other day and I was talking to Ainsley. It was when we were walking around the neighborhood, which we do a lot. Shout out to my neighborhood. Um, <laughs> the metaphor I thought of was, because this town is so, like music in general, Nashville, LA, New York, they love hype and they love it to, they love it to build up to a point and then everyone jumps in and, and you, you, people call it catching a break, right? But really, to me, it feels like you're setting up dominoes. Like if you're an aspiring artist, imagine it more instead of, because there's no such thing as the best advice I ever got in regards to music business, you're shaking your head, but the best advice I ever got was, there's no such thing as the meeting. So don't stress out. Like, and maybe that's, that's probably true in all business, but there's no such thing as the meeting. That's what, that's why people are so fascinated with television shows like Shark Tank and stuff like that. It's cause it's like, that's not really real. Like what's real and what happens all the time is it is a, a buildup of all the small moments build together. And to me, it feels like you're setting up dominoes for an elaborate domino thing, right? Like to knock them all over, you're gonna make a shape or whatever. Well, like the pebbles in the stream comment. It's, it's the same dam. thing. But more often than not, it is just showing up every day. And people call it the grind, they call it the hustle or whatever. It doesn't feel like a grind to me. Like perhaps it, I'm sure my dad feels like it's a grind. Like, cause he, he, well, maybe I, my dad gets more frustrated with the timing on it than me. And he's, you know, his, his whole thing is, I just wish I was a millionaire so I could just buy your fame like everybody else. But it's like, well, <laughs> but maybe, then you don't have success maybe the, maybe the reason that I get such a bad taste in my mouth about the concept of grind and hustle is the prioritization of like result over relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you're right. I think that's what's so off-putting for me is it's like you don't make good art if you're worried about making art. You know what I mean? Because you're not if you're like so, capital A art that yeah, will be received well. Commercial. If you're more focused with the commercial than the art, you're not going to actually make art. You're going to make tchotchke. <laughs> you know, like uh, my I had a professor in college who liked calling it widget. She's like, you're gonna make widgets. Like, <laughs> she's like, whatever the widget is. And it was like, I don't, I don't even know what a widget is, ma'am, but I, I'm tracking with you. It's got a lot of flips and switches on it. Yeah, but I'm tracking with you. Like what she meant is it's, it doesn't even deserve a name. She's right. It, it, you know, it's, we get to make art and if we made money from art immediately, it wouldn't feel sweet. Like you just need to make art for the love of it and improve and chase the rabbit and, you know, Lord willing and the creek don't rise, you can make a living out of it. And that's the ride I'm on, like. <laughs> but I don't think that the living thing needs to be needs to be the focus either like mm -hmm. no I, i'm with you 
especially like you mentioned if you made a living out of it immediately you would have a really skewed concept of art at would all be super whack because it'd be like well this is i have to do this and that's not the truth like, like if you if you can leverage and if you can figure out how to make both things work that's fine but like your job is to focus on craft and here's here's my thing like for me why i'm so thankful i was not successful as an artist in my youth not that i'm old now but i'm 29 like i'm not a kid by any stretch of the imagination although i feel like a 12 year old so but that's all that you are brothers. a 12 year old <laughs> like a in many ways yeah <laughs> but um the the thing that I, if, I never would have had people give me the honest feedback if my name had been on the board. You know what I mean? If my name had been on the marquee, I never would have had people give me the actual feedback and life lessons and critique. And it never would have happened. Because once, once your name's on the marquee, you're insulated from that. You have enough like, and this is not to sla slam people, but you have enough like sycophantic energy to where people want to be, they want to be close to you and they don't want to ruffle feathers. They don't want to rock the boat. There's so many ways to say like, they just want to be yes people. Um, and that's so precious to find people that aren't. And, you know, for better or for worse, I've always tried to be not a yes person to everyone I've ever played for. And in some cases it's made it kind of strange and in some cases it's been incredible and made a real friendship so you know some some relationships can weather that and some are here's some great advice from a tour manager keith ellard um you got to learn what are your friendships and what are your situationships and only mm -hmm. invest in the friendships you know what i mean like and the older i get the more that makes sense like and there are some people that you you know you're touring with or you're working with if you're not on the road like you're you know you're in our office with your situationship right your friends because it's convenient to be in that situation and but they can graduate to a full-fledged friendship you know to a full-fledged relationship like that but not over investing and he was referencing you know having family stuff suffer because you're over investing with people that aren't even going to answer the phone call when you call them after this. And that was very insightful for me. He also renovated the bathrooms at Baja Burrito. If you want to go see his work as a contractor, it's flawless. Never been so scared cutting tile in my life. There, there's the music industry for you. I drove back early on Christmas Day from South Carolina to go renovate a bathroom in Baja Burrito with Keith. The year before I played, so one year, and then the following year I was playing the New Year's Eve thing with Jesse in New York. So one year for New Year's, I was literally renovating a bathroom and then I picked up a gig at like Opryland Hotel. And then the next year I was playing in New York City. And that's the music industry. It's the same, you're the exact same person, you're basically the same player, you've grown a bit, but, but it's just, you just ride it out, man. And... Rent ain't gonna pay itself. So, you know, you pick up a gig fixing a bathroom with a buddy who's a contractor. <laughs>
the music industry, baby. Keep you humble. But it's art too. I mean, you've you've worked so many jobs to come home and and do your art after the fact. Yeah. And it can. It's funny. Thank uh, you, Papa John's, for sponsoring <laughs> a solid period of my life where I could deliver pizza and make art. Dude, the um, Dolly Parton partnered with Squarespace for the Super Bowl. I know you guys didn't watch it, but they had a commercial and it was her nine to five song, but flipped five to nine, talking about a side hustle and starting your own company. And, That's fantastic. And it was for Squarespace. It was really cool. That's I fantastic. loved it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did not see that. Yeah, it was really cool. You should go watch it. But um, it was just funny. I thought it was so clever and so cute. Like, yeah. Working five to nine. Yeah, it was talking about like, make your passion your your job and it was like yeah also thanks squarespace for future sponsorship bro my my website squarespace mine is too yeah squarespace bro yeah this this podcast you're listening to is is hosted on squarespace there you go jonathan thanks for doing this kevin always a pleasure my friend fun i'm excited i'm excited to listen to it oh it's gonna be long i love podcasts well this has been the Spirit of Play Conversations on Creativity podcast. <laughs> the Kevin O podcast. The Kevin O podcast. <laughs> Thanks for listening.